0: You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio day. Well, good afternoon. This past week, my son Clark, who's six, got to be Ernest Shackleton for a day. How many of you guys know who Ernest Shackleton is? All four of you. Great. This is going to be good. Uh, he had like this cohort of students that he's with, and they all had to pick a person to be and to present on. And so we've been really pushing. He wanted to be a millionaire Earhart for a while, and so that was really exciting. But then he kind of switched to wanting to be Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton was a captain of one of the most famous expeditions that went really south, to say the least. Uh, recently, they discovered the boat. It was buried in the ice in Antarctica for the last 100 years. The The boat's name was The Endurance. You maybe saw a news story about it. If any of the news agencies that you watch, I'm sure, had a story on it. And they discovered the boat. And so actually in discovering the boat, Keaton told me about the article. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of intriguing. Maybe there's a book out there about this voyage. And there is. Uh, it was written in 1950s by Alfred Lansing. What a great name! And it's basically the story of the journey. Let me give you kind of a, a quick overview of it. I was trying to give Clark an overview. Here. He already actually knows more than me at this point. He was correcting me when we were going through his presentation. He didn't really want to listen. I was like, dude, I public speak for a living. Like I could kind of help you with your presentation. But he did great. He didn't need he didn't need Dad's help. Uh, so he uh, so if you know the story at all. Uh, Ernest Angleton was an explorer, and he, his vision was to go around Antarctica, and he had like the sign that said, men wanted hazardous journey ahead at the dock somewhere, and so people just signed up to be on this journey together, and so they set out, and everything's going great. Well, they run into like this area of Antarctica where they get surrounded by ice, and so the boat gets stuck, and for over, I think, close to a year, the boat is just literally stuck in one spot of the ice. Uh, there's like pictures of them like playing soccer on the ice and doing all this crazy stuff. They had sled dogs as well. That ended tragically. I won't tell you the rest of the story on that because there's kids in the room. But uh, anyways, they get off the boat, they realize the boat's gonna sink, and now they need to survive. And Shackleton as the captain, he had been on different expeditions before. But he's just like this dramatic moment where he like takes his Bible out. He had the one Bible they had. And they're trying to say, hey, only the most limited belongings you need to bring with you for the journey. And so all he does is rip out Psalm 23 and a passage in Job about the seas. He's like has like an effect to like say, hey, throw everything else away. We're going forward. Now, don't do that with your Bible. Uh, but pretty cool moment. And uh, the rest of the, the story in the book is how for two years... He navigated through all these different challenges, the survival of all 27 men, two years, from the ice to abandon on an island, to boats, to swells, to sickness. It was it's unbelievable story. I'd recommend you reading it. Like we could start a book club or something like that. It'd be that it's that good. Um, and there's so many different things that you could take from it. We're gonna pull out a few today, but the main thing I, that that has struck me is is Shackleton lived into his calling better than most, if any, ever will. Like, as a captain of a ship, he had this great calling. Hey, you're the captain, you're in charge of this expedition. Your mission is to both accomplish and to save everyone along the way. Like, he walked worthy of the calling. And as you watch the stories, it's unbelievable the steps he would take for the sake of saving all 27 men. He walked worthy of the calling. He lived into his calling. He had a congruence between what his title was and his identity and how he actually lived and operated. He was really a captain of these men. We've been in Ephesians for the last four weeks. And we've been jumping into all these different parts of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And you've been given this big vision of your calling, your identity as God's people. All the ways God, through Jesus has shaped us, has blessed us, chosen us, given us an inheritance, uh, how he's raised us to new life, how he's seated us with Christ. But then a shift takes place in Ephesians chapter 4, where this dramatic word, therefore, hey, live in light of your calling. Live in a congruence with who God has made you to be and how you live everyday life. So we're going to look at Ephesians 4 today, verses 1 through 17. As Paul transitions the letter from here's who you are in Christ to now live according to your calling. Live worthy of the calling you've received. And I want to look at these verses today and make some implications of them. To frame this week and the next two weeks, I want to bring us actually first, though, to Ephesians 2, 19-22. If you want to turn there. Ephesians 2, 19-22. Because Paul uses some words here that Ben has brought out in the podcast, if you listen to that. That I think will shape the three themes of the next three weeks. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. I'm in the CSV CSV version. I don't want anybody to get upset at me. So let me go to NIV. Okay, there we go. Definitely not ESV. We can talk about that later. Alright, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. So the first thing we're going to look at this week is this theme of kingdom, that you're a citizen of the kingdom, and what does it mean to live according to your calling in light of this kingdom identity and some of the gifts that have been given to us in Ephesians 4. Then he continues, and you're also members of his household. So there's imagery of family. We're not only the kingdom of God, the the king's people, but we're a family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And you are also being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by the Spirit. Family, temple, and kingdom. This week we're going to look at kingdom. Next we're going to look at temple. And the following week we're going to look at family. As we journey from Ephesians 4 to Ephesians 6. So kingdom, how do we live as citizens of the kingdom in light of what Paul's telling us here in Ephesians 4? You can turn over there now. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. 1 through 16. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Let me read it for us. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, or therefore, I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope in which you were, when you were called, to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who... <laughs> who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Verse eight, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who has ascended higher than all the heavens in order that to fill the whole universe. And then verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles The prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of God. Then, verse 14 What's going to be the outcome of all this work that God's doing on our behalf and through us? So this is what we're going to be looking at today, Ephesians chapter 4, trying to flesh out this theme of kingdom, but there's two things I don't want you to miss as we read through those first seven or eight verses that it would be easy to overlook, to jump to what are we supposed to do to live in light of our calling. The first thing is this, notice how the word one is used in verses four and five, I believe, verses, yeah, verses four and five and six. It's used seven times. That's not by accident. Seven is a biblical number that means wholeness or completeness. Paul's playing with us here in some ways, saying, hey, I'm going to give you seven ones to emphasize the unity and oneness that you are called to live according to in light of what Christ has done. If we could just have a, a, like a off-script moment as a church, even in this, in this time and space right here, I think this is a really important word to us in light of where we're at as a church and the circumstances we're facing. The enemy, who we're going to see in Ephesians 6, and all through the story, he sows lies, he creates division, he makes us suspicious of one another. And I just feel like these two verses here to start in Ephesians 4, look at the words that are used here, are so timely for us. Says verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Of all the things Paul could have said to start, to tell you how here's how you live out your identity. It's interesting he chooses these words. What does it look like for us as a church in this season to experience unity and oneness in the midst of challenging circumstances? Now let me make something clear because unity and oneness can be watered down and it can mean something I don't mean it to be. Let me just, a few things that came to mind this week. Unity in Christ is not a uniformity of opinion or preference or insight. You can have unity amidst real disagreement and struggle. Oneness in Christ is not a community devoid of conflict or tension, but rather a community that seeks repair and reconciliation where needed. Linda Morris, who's one of the spiritual mothers of our city at First Pentecostal Baptist Church in South Phoenix, says, the only body that doesn't experience tension is a corpse. Oneness in Christ is, sounds less like everything is great, and more like I'm going to assume the best of my brother or sister that's sitting across from me. Unity and oneness in Christ is less Amazon Prime and more cultivating a place for things to grow. There are no shortcuts to unity and oneness. It's something that grows from the ground, not drops out of a plane. Interestingly, when you look at uh, the story of Ernest Shackleton, there were really serious threats they faced as a crew, all 27 when they got off, and they realized they weren't getting back on the ship. But more than a threat of a lack of food... More than a threat of the dangers they'd face, like sea lions that tried to eat a couple of them, that's a real story. More than the danger of frigid temperatures and water and their hands and feet becoming numb and frostbitten. More than all those threats, the greatest threat he saw was to have one one of his crew negatively defect in a sense to lower the morale of the team, to go whisper in somebody's ear and say, "Yeah, this like he's crazy." Like, this is no good. We should start something different. And so interestingly, he took the person he thought would bring the lowest morale of the whole team, and he put that person in his tent. He brought them close so he could, in a sense, both keep an eye on them, but also, in a sense, begin to nurture and shape, knowing that if this person creates a cancer that runs through the whole group, the mission will be lost and all the lives will be saved, or all the the lives will be lost as well. Shackleton knew that it takes one person with a heart of gossip or slander and it spreads like cancer through a whole group. So here's just a question I've been processing with myself primarily because I think this starts with me and then the invitation is to you. As we navigate this next season as a church, what seeds of suspicion or mistrust might exist in your own heart towards a brother or sister in this room? And how might these seeds be nourished and watered that seek to threaten our life together as a good news people in our city? Would you just sit in silence with that for a moment? Where are the seeds in our own hearts, like we talked about last week, of how sin does its work? Where could we fall victim to creating suspicion or even slander of another as we navigate this time and place? Where might the enemy right now try to deceive, tell a partial truth about somebody next to you or around you that actually isn't actually who they are as an image bearer of God? That's the first insight. I wanted you to see the unity and oneness of the Spirit, not a uniformity or devoid of conflict or tension, but a oneness in the midst of it. The second thing I want you to see is what Paul quotes here of Psalm 68. Uh, does, somebody, does somebody have a Bible open that could turn to Psalm 68, verse 18 for me? Who would like to be a reader today? This is a, This is a volunteer moment. Psalm 68, verse 18. Okay, hold it right there. Let me read first Ephesians 4, where Paul quotes this verse. And then we're going to read Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen, And then I have a question for you. All right. It says this. Verse 8, Ephesians 4, verse 8 says, This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. All right, go ahead and read, Nate. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. What's the difference? Did you, did you notice it? Yeah. Did you guys notice that? Paul, come on, man. Why are you messing with the Bible? Paul seems to, like, turn the passage on its head. In Psalm 68, it says, the king receives gifts. The vision here is of a king who comes back from a battle, who's triumphant. They come through the city in a great procession, and everyone's supposed to be there to celebrate, and the captives follow behind the king, and the people of the city bring a gift, in honor, to show recognition that the king has accomplished this great victory. That's not what Ephesians is saying says he gave gifts to his people. Now, you should talk to Ben later. I'm going to put him on the spot of what Paul is actually doing here. There's probably some really great semantics of what's happening. There's great theories of, well, maybe Paul's referencing some specific manuscript that isn't exactly what we have. There's a lot of theories out there. But don't let the semantics drown the power of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying in Christ's kingdom... Different from other kingdoms where the king receives gifts. In Christ's kingdom, the crucified king, he comes in procession with captives that are not his enemies, but his friends, that have been bought by his own blood. And instead of people giving him gifts, like that song we would sing about laying your crown at Jesus' feet, he actually gives gifts, this king. And he gave us gifts as a church. And that's about what he's about what he's going to outline here for the rest of Ephesians 4. What are the gifts? That Christ has given his church so that we might live as a kingdom people in our time and place. That's what I want to unpack for the rest of our time. What are these gifts that he gave? Let me reread for you Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says this So Christ gave himself, or Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So something about these gifts that are being given give us the full measure of who Christ is. I want to unpack for us, just for the next couple of moments together, these five gifts There's been a lot of books written about them. There's one specific missiologist who helped really shape the founding of our church, Alan Hirsch, who's done a lot of great work with these five gifts. But these aren't just gifts or, or callings for people that are out there or for people that stand up here in front, but the gifts and callings are for the whole body. That all of us have a way to participate in the giftings that are outlined here and the callings of being apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So let me try to give a definition of each. And at the end, I'm going to have you think through, if you haven't had this language before, which of those five gifts, in a sense, you find you're laying in based on personality and strengths that God has given you. The first one is the apostle. It comes from the word apostolo, or apostello, which simply means sent one. Apostles extend the gospel they're like the front line people. They see themselves on the very edge of the church and the world. They're out there in the midst of the people. They have visions and dreams of what it could look like if the kingdom were to break through. Often with apostles, they can see a whole tree of all that God could do, while many only just see a seed, like yours truly. See a seed where apostles can see the tree and say, "What if God were to move in our midst in this way?" They're pioneers. Willing to start new things, try new things, risk in ways to see people encounter Christ. Stephanie Whedon is an apostle in our midst. I'm serious. Like, to spend some time with Stephanie Whedon and hear how she thinks about how the gospel comes to bear in our city. And the interaction she has and the relationships she's nurturing and cultivating. She is a frontline pioneer of saying, hey, I want to see others experience the gospel that I have received. Prophets, oh, the prophets, they know and tell God's will. Prophets know and tell God's will. They're tuned. They're, they're, they're able to both offer correction, challenge, maybe even sometimes a word of comfort, but prophets are able to speak directly into a situation and that you don't even know where it came from. Prophets are really concerned about seeing how the church's witness has an integrity, a congruence between what we say and what we do. They have to match. And a prophet, if they see that it doesn't match, they call it out. They see it. They say, hey, this isn't actually matching. What you say and what you do is actually not the same. We get scared of the word prophet because maybe we've had an experience of someone giving a prophetic word or um, something crazy being said over us, and you're like, oh, I don't want to touch that. But prophets are actually are are among us, first of all, and second of all, are needed for the church's witness to hold its congruence and integrity. I live with a prophet. I don't know if you guys knew this. Like Keaton, I think her one of her primary giftings is of a prophetic voice. She's able to speak into situations and things with images and phrases that sears to my heart, first of all. It's like, oh, that's painful. But also to others as well. And you would never guess. Spend some time with her. She's one of the most friendly people you've ever met. But she's able to speak prophetically into things, to call, even incorrect sometimes, as hard as that is. Someone else who I think has prophetic gifting in our midst is Megan Visser, who's sitting in the back here. And this is why because Megan wants what she says and what she does to be entirely, completely congruent. So last week, Gary over here, he got a little pastor Gary got a little upset because we left a couple things out. It was kind of a busy week, all right? Last week if you were around, a few things got left out. And for Megan, that's like that's that's like, oh, there's a difference between what I said and what I did. That there's a lack of congruence. And I'm like, don't even worry about that. That was at least of my concerns after last week. But like her care is that she wants to see the two together. Like, hey, you we said we were gonna do this. Are we actually doing it? Like, are we actually gonna live that out? Alright, the evangelists. Evangelists are recruiters. They invite people. They have a contagious energy about them. They are good storytellers. They want to see uh, those who are on the outside. Hey, come, come experience. Come experience how good this is. How good Jesus is. What does it look like to have uh, someone, when you have someone who is really contagious with their energy, it's like, it's exciting. Like, oh, I want to be around this person because everything they do is amazing. They want others to experience what they're experiencing. They have a come and see mentality. They want others to come and see. Kenny Marslender, I think, is an evangelist in our midst. Like, Kenny, if you spend time with him, definitely has contagious energy. Definitely says yes to way too many things. We're working on that, Kenny. But he's an inviter. Like, hey, come, come experience this thing that I'm experiencing. Come be part of this thing. Come be part of experiencing the God that I know. All right, the last two, shepherds. Shepherds nurture and protect. So if the apostle is asking, hey, where do we go next? What's, what's next? Where do we go next? And the prophet's asking, what, what are we supposed to say in the midst of this challenge? The shepherd's asking, how will this affect people? Like, how's this going to affect the people that we've been entrusted to lead and to care for? Their primary concern is to say, "Hey, in a community, like they, they're able to like, "Hey, I can name the hundred stories in this room, and I want to make sure that each person is cared for along the way. I don't want people left behind. I want people to be nurtured and shepherded and brought forward. If you spend any time with Sarah Hamilton, I think she has a shepherd gifting. She's able to nurture. And protect, maybe some prophetic gifting there too. We'll talk about that later. Nurture and protect. And her question, I think, that often she brings to me in healthy ways as we dialogue about situations and challenges is, hey, how is this going to affect people? And she has particular people in mind. I'm like, I don't know. We'll just figure it out. The last one, teachers. Teachers are able to understand and explain. Understand and explain. They have this like, uh, unquenchable desire to understand how things work and then to explain it to somebody else. They want to do a deep dive into a particular area or uh, theme that they see and say, hey, how do I understand this from all the different angles? So that I might, as John Del Husay said, if you're a part of the Art and Faith Night, he said theology is giving language to what people have already experienced. That's what a teacher is doing. They're trying to give language to what you and I have already experienced. Teaching, don't think of teaching just as a person who stands up in front, although that can be part of it, but teaching even in just conversation and dialogue. I know we have like a pattern here in our culture of just, when there's any hard questions, we just say go talk to Chris Hamilton, but we kind of really we kind of really mean it in some ways because Chris, I think, is a teacher. He has a teacher gifting because what happens with Chris is he's listening to you and he's, I think he has a shepherd gifting too. He's understanding of the question that you're coming from and then you give him like three or four days and he'll give you the most robust balanced, insightful, use three or four words you never heard before, answer that you're like, wow, that was really good. He'll read a book in the meantime to make sure he's answering the right right question. But he wants to help people understand and explain the gospel. These are the five gifts. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. These gifts have been given to build up the body, not for self-promotion, or for the celebration of one particular person or individual, but for the body to be built up and to be matured and whole. So I'd love for you to turn to some people around you. I didn't give you a perfect definition of all five, but I gave you enough to run with, and I gave you a couple people to think about, am I similar to that person or not? And the best, sometimes the best answer to these questions is to ask the person sitting next to you who knows you better than you know yourself. But I'd love for you to turn to some people around you. As you think about those five giftings, which one or two are like, hey, that actually really resonates with me, And the role I've already played in seeing the body of Christ built up. We'll talk for a couple minutes and then I'll call you back. Ready, set, go. Let me, call you, let me call you back. I'm sure that wasn't definitely enough time to answer this question in its fullness. I think a help, helpful thing to remember about all five of the gifts is that there is a healthy and unhealthy demonstration of the gifts often in the church. And all of us have experienced both with our own gifting and the giftings of others how these can be both used as swords to injure and harm, or as as a soothing balm to help nourish and encourage the body. Every week when we start our service, the same thing happens But you guys aren't here. Kenny comes up here, he begins playing some songs, if he has somebody else with him. He plays his first song, and then his question is, hey, how does it sound? And he's saying that not to me because he he knows I know nothing about music. He's saying that primarily to Megan and Sarah or to Cammie. And they say, hey, turn so-and-so up or turn so-and-so down. Adjust in this way. The goal is balance so that as you guys get to worship with us, it's not just one voice or one instrument being heard. I think it's a lot like the giftings. The giftings together are supposed to work in harmony and unison like a symphony. But often what happens, often what happens is some giftings are elevated at the expense of others. I just want to, to kind of close our time, I want to give you a brief kind of history of these giftings as I see it in the Western Church, and then an invitation for you before I invite you to communion. Uh, because of Christendom, as which means that the church in a sense and state became very much aligned and together, For much of Western history, there's some really beautiful things and good things about that. But what happened was when those two two things aligned, it emphasized the shepherd and teaching gifts or callings at the expense of the apostle, prophet, and evangelist. If everyone's a Christian, why do you need to evangelize or have apostles that start new things? Everybody's a Christian. So the shepherds and teachers became the primary vision of what it means to be equipped in God's story to live as God's people. And then not only that, the enlightenment comes, which is this elevation of mental ascent and intellect at the expense, I think, of the body in a lot of ways. And what happens in that movement is now especially the teacher, the one who can give really good truths from his mouth and share, especially, it's usually his, that was the context too, not women, but his mouth and be able to share. And the most educated person in the room would get up here in front and they would do a service in Latin and they would lead people through as a teacher for a largely illiterate culture or society, so now shepherd and teacher again are highlighted at the expense of the other gifts. the The music is not sounding too good. So, Missio's DNA, the vision of why Missio was planted, was to see a recovery of all five giftings within the local church, because what often happened through history, especially as Christendom and shepherds and teachers begin elevated. There's a phrase that Alan Hirsch uses, the apes got kicked out of the church. The apostles, the prophets, and evangelists, they got kicked out and they started non-profits and different arms of the church to, in a sense, fill in the gaps, rightly so, for the church was failing because the church wasn't speaking to justice, because the church wasn't in the new frontiers of where people need to hear the gospel, because the church wasn't inviting people to come and see. People said, well, screw it. I'm going to go start my own thing. And fill in the gaps where the church is lacking. And so, Missio's vision was hey, how do we recover the fivefold gifting of the church, the calling that apostles and prophets and evangelists would work side by side, shepherds and teachers, so that people in our city, through our missional communities and living in the story as a family of servant ambassadors, might encounter good news? Like, that's the vision to see all the giftings used to recover the missionary identity of the church as an apostolic church, apostolic witness, sent people. That's why, we, that's why Missio was started. But here's a hunch I have that maybe is not true, but I, have, I feel like I have good data to say it is. We, as a church, have an apostolic model, a missionary model, as in we want to see everyday people like you and me, in everyday life, be, declare, and demonstrate good news. Like, that's what we want to see. We want to see people that are on the outside looking in to encounter Christ. We want to see those who are at the margins of our society brought to the center. We want to see the poor uh, liberated, both with the good news of Jesus Christ and also to be wrapped and brought into community. That's the vision. That's the hope. But I feel like in this season of our church, And there's really good reasons for some of this, too. We are heavy on the shepherd and teacher giftings. And I think we need to recover the apostolic, evangelistic, and prophetic giftings. I think that's a season where we're weak in those. And weak not because they don't exist here in this room, even. Because they haven't been elevated and displayed and showcased. And that's a lot of my own leadership, as well, as someone who fits more in a shepherd-teacher gifting to actually see those other giftings rise and come to the surface. So my invitation for you, I don't have a strategy, I don't have a five-point plan, is to see the five-fold giftings work together, and particularly to see who those in our midst that have more of an apostolic, evangelistic, prophetic gifting be nourished and cultivated, and they might lead us into some new frontiers as a church, to see men, women, and children encounter Jesus Christ in word and deed to recover what the vision was all along, to see those on the outside brought in and this community be transformed. I have a picture up here. Cole, finally I'm getting into it. But this would hopefully be the vision of our church as the shepherds and teachers are shaping the body. We're a body, not a church building, so just don't, don't get too into the picture here. But the evangelists are inviting people in. The prophets are speaking back to the church for a congruence of our life, and the apostles are calling us out. They're calling us to a new frontier as God's people. This is the vision of what I hope to recover and invite you and I into a dialogue about what that might look like in our midst in the years to come. All right, kids, come take a seat because we're about ready to start communion. You guys are here just in time for the best part of the service. Clark and Lucas, you guys want to sit right here? I got two more things to say. Do you guys think you can handle it? I think so. Two things I want to say to lead us to the table and Sarah Hamilton and I will serve you today. Two things. You need two things to mature as a human body. Two things to mature as a human body. One, you need a secure and steady foundation that transcends your circumstances. The mystery of our faith is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That transcends any circumstance you're experiencing. You need that as a human to exist. You need hope beyond the frame. But then, two, two. What you not only need something that transcends circumstances. You need to be nourished. You need to be nourished with actual food for your body to grow, to be mature, and to be whole. And so, every week we recite the mystery of our faith, and we invite you to be nourished here at this table. And so, would you stand with me as we're about to together recite the mystery? and then be nourished with Jesus' body and his blood. Repeat this with me. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and be nourished by the King.